And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. What's up, hustlers? It's Andrew Morgans, your host here for today's episode of Startup Hustle, covering all things e-commerce and Amazon. Founder of Marknology and Amazon Brand Accelerator. I'm excited for today's guest. I've got another agency owner in the Amazon space, and um, I'm excited to introduce him. We're going to get into story and just kind of talk shop a little bit for you guys as as just agencies owners in this space. And I think some of it will trickle down and um, you know provide some insight into um, what we're dealing with with multiple brands, kind of in the day to day of 2021, and what that looks like for Amazon. Chris from Supply Kick, welcome to the show. Sorry, I got a little tongue tied. Thanks, Andrew. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, super, super excited to have you on Startup Hustle. Um, you know, we we're talking about our puppies and our kids. Uh, so if anyone's listening and they pipe in, they're just part of the show, part of the ambiance, as they say. Um, you know, Chris, I really like to start these episodes just real conversational. Um, honestly, just getting to know a little bit about um, your story. And um, you know, you have an Amazon agency, much like Marknology, with full service and wholesale services, and we cover a lot of the same things. Um, you know, talking about the number of agencies versus the number of brands in the world that can use our help—it's like it's endless. Um, and I want to talk about some of that, honestly, about you know how we choose who we're working with as we go forward, to kind of in this space, and how to pick winners and stuff like that. But um, you know, let's start with your story, even a little bit before you got into Amazon, like wherever you kind of as far back as you want to go. I know my story getting into e-commerce was not traditional. Um, you know, how'd you get into the space? How'd you get into entrepreneurship? Uh, you know, give me some of the background. Yeah. Well, my first exposure to entrepreneurship was back in high school when I started a landscaping lawn care company when I was 14 and really had a blast basically just put mowing my neighbor's lawns, but it, it just continued to grow year over year. And I was able to get it up to about 12 employees and okay. uh, so, sold it when I was 19 in early in college uh, to the other part partners I had in the business. And um, yeah, it just cemented my love for building something out of nothing and realizing value by delivering something that a customer, a homeowner really appreciated. I uh, so, can we, Let's stop there just for a second because I actually, my first... So I grew up overseas in Africa and we come back and forth. And when I would come back, I stayed with my grandparents, didn't necessarily jump into school because I'd be there for a semester or something. And I was doing lawns too. I think I got up to just like 15 or 20, but it was just me and a buddy. And um, I still kind of miss mowing and landscape. I did landscaping again in Hawaii later on in life. And there's something about just, you know, the customer being super happy with the work. It's like probably an hour or less to get it done, depending on, you know, what kind of job you're doing. And it's just real like systemized and organized kind of kind of job. Um, yeah, I, I loved it, too. I, I honestly um, still love landscaping today. I wish I could make more money doing it, <laughs> uh, you know, um, but there's something about just like knocking out a project and doing a good job that I think landscaping um Bring. So that's just small world. Okay. So you're in college 19. You've already sold a business. You're definitely way ahead of me at this point. <laughs> well, that's uh, a riff on landscaping a little further. I mean, some people have a, the, the, their preferred think spot is in the shower or on the toilet or in the car. For me, it's absolutely being on a zero turn radius riding mower, like cutting lines of, you know, s straight stripes of uh, grass cut, you know, in a big open lawn field. Mm -hmm. So I kind of miss that, that thinking spot. It's been far too many years since I've uh, been on a riding lawnmower. I feel that you might just have to buy one just for fun and be <laughs> like, you know, this is my creative thinking space. Okay. So you're yeah. 19, you're in college. Where are you, what, what college are you in and what are you studying? I went to a college called Purdue university okay. and at Purdue, I studied building construction management. I was excited to take my entrepreneurial passion into the world of construction. It's one of the you know, world's largest industries. It employs a ton of people and I got excited about building a business in that space and worked 
for a variety of companies, a wind farm developer, a general contractor building office spaces and uh, a, a real estate developer. Um, okay. So got a good breadth of experience, but was afforded the opportunity upon the uh, graduating um, college to go work for a software company and uniquely okay. to be given the ability to rotate around the business and various departments that would accelerate my understanding of the business as a whole and to be mentored by the CEO who I greatly respected. So is I said, yes. Kind of, is that kind of how you went from construction to that position was just knowing the CEO and he knew kind of your maybe skill set or mindset or abilities like outside of the degree that kind of brought you in there? Yeah, I live in Indiana and the state of Indiana has a neat program that is intended to keep its college graduates plugged into the state rather than going to bigger cities and hubs. And so that program is called the Orr Fellowship, O-R-R, -R, named after a former governor, Robert Orr of Indiana. So it's, it's an entrepreneurial program that recruits from some of the state's top colleges. And so I, I got into that program and that's part of the way I was able to be mentored by the CEO and be rotated around the business is that okay. it's, it's kind of a, a fast track to management or business leadership experience. So. It Very happened cool. to be that they recruited me as a project manager, but just mm -hmm. at a tech company. And if I had gone into construction, I would have likely been a project manager, but for construction companies. Mm -hmm. And so this, the, the two are actually quite similar. You manage schedules, budgets, people, you know, resources, et cetera. And so yep. um, that, that kind of came naturally to me. And then later I found that being a project manager was actually really, really helpful for being an entrepreneur, because in that you've got to manage employees and customer commitments and budgets and all that the above. And so it helped me assemble a team of resources or team team of people, manage the people and the, the deadlines that we had, you know, to deliver on things. So that's kind of you know, the, the educational backdrop. I did yeah. study entrepreneurship, finance and management alongside construction. Okay. And so um, my, I have kind of similar similarities in regards to I went to school for computer science. Um, and I feel like learning programming and the nature of it, like you're managing the project, you're reverse engineering kind of the solution and coming back, um, as well as I'm involved in real estate now. So with my real estate business, uh, it's kind of my, like if Amazon all went to shit, like what, yeah. you know, what would be my background? And we probably have about 90 properties here in Kansas city that we've, um, flipped and managed. And so it's, it's very similar. Like I've built my marketing agency marknology to i would say with the premise of like a restaurant the way that a restaurant works from the inside and then like you know with the brands the like the actual work we're doing with the clients is a lot more like you know kind of flipping a house um yeah. in a construction project you're kind of just evaluating the structure how's the business like what does it need um and then come kind of coming in and being like okay let's do the bathroom this way let's do the you know the the story this way so i'm finding this very interesting okay so you're in tech, though, which is kind of the highest sought out like industry right now, in my opinion, like it's the easiest to get a job, easiest to move around, easiest to get investment. Um, why didn't you stay in software? So I, I fulfilled the commitment of the OR Fellowship, which is a two year commitment straight out of college. I, I did the two years, had the ability to stay on but was really ready to get back in the saddle of building something from nothing and just realizing the value and, and just the joy of the ride along the way. And so yeah. um, it just so happened that while I was at that technology company, they did a, an annual garage sale of all of their electronics. So old keyboards and monitors and mice. And randomly, I went ahead and I bought three excess or, or old mice. And these were Microsoft or Dell mice that of all things, they had a laser pointer built into the, the mouse. So you could push a button on the side of the mouse and then start, you know, pointing to things on a on a, a wall, you know, with your laser pointer. So I bought them all for $5 and interested in like, hey, maybe I can sell, flip these on eBay or something, which I had sold, I got into eBay when I was really young. And so I thought maybe there's potential. Well, it turns out that Amazon was really going strong and this is in 2011. Okay. Um, and so I listed those as used on Amazon for $50 a piece because they were $100 retail and I got them for five bucks. And they all sold within within 72 hours uh, of listing those products. So I was like, wow, this is awesome. Like a 10 times markup from you know something I bought in a garage sale. Like this is pretty great. And so I tried to do more of that. 
and happened upon another situation of someone selling office chairs, Herman Miller office chairs, which are in high demand. It's a museum of modern art piece by a just really great office chair. So I found 12 of them for sale by a guy that was closing down his business and he gave me a steal of a deal. And so I, I only needed a couple because I actually wanted some for my home office between mm -hmm. me and my wife. Bought 12 and turned them around uh, within a week uh, back on Craigslist at the time, which I don't know if anyone still uses it now, but uh, Craigslist helped me uh, net a couple grand um, by by selling those office chairs. So I was just became in love with flipping, with, with finding an attractive deal at, at a, an affordable price that, that, a buy, that a seller was willing to say yes to. So there's mutual benefit realized there and then moving it into another market you know at a higher price and so definition of that is really arbitrage of buying something mm -hmm. at a lower price and move it to another so i i in 2011 and then beyond um i decided to go into that and it just so happened that that, that was really booming at the time and it was attractive enough that uh, i kind of made a go of it so I, I left the technology position went into retail arbitrage buying products mostly on the clearance racks of Target, Walmart, Lowe's, and many other big box stores, sometimes for 70% off and then selling it for close to full price on Amazon. Can we and stop that, just for a second? Can we sure. Because I think a lot of people that hear about Amazon or making money on Amazon or on YouTube or Instagram or wherever are really hearing about arbitrage, like, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. or private label maybe, but like, um, for the most part, I don't think they even do what we do at this point as far as agencies and they're really hearing about arbitrage. So, you know, we get a lot of different listeners from a lot of different backgrounds and I would like to just dig into this arbitrage thing just a little bit. Um, you know, like I actually went through um, a divorce around 2013 and um, I was purging, you know, and uh, like through purging um, and just trying to get out of debt and just like, that was something I could focus on was like my finance or whatever, something I had control over. And um, I just started like putting stuff into FBA, into Prime, uh, you know, listing stuff on Facebook swap shop or like different things like that. And was like selling stuff I already had, you know, like things like power cords, um, you know, to computers and just like, you're like, wow, I just got, I mean, I was just going to throw this away and I got 12 bucks for it. And all I had to do was send in a box of like mixed goods, anything that's still out of UPC on it or whatever at the time. Yeah. Um, but I want to ask a specific question around. So, you know, in my, if I was to make assumptions um, and my best friend and my partner in real estate actually went through a similar program, not in Indian, Indy, uh, in Indiana, but here in Kansas city with the army. Um, they have a program like a fellowship program like that, that tries to get people, um, you know, acclimated to, to corporate world outside of the military or school or whatever. And so he went into a program like that and kind of um, right out of that leapt into entrepreneurship. He wanted to build something from scratch. So it's like, you know, a lot of similarities. I feel like there's a lot of similar vibes, so to speak, or, or, or um, pathways that like people that are doing their own thing kind of find themselves in. And so for you to take that leap, I know where it was when I took that leap. When you took that leap, you're like, oh, it was just going well. And so I decided to leave a software company. Well, you have an intract to the CEO, you're learning a whole lot of stuff, a tech company that's probably pretty good if they're just like selling stuff, you know, like for chump change, they're probably doing pretty well. Um, did you just start like, did you buy a big container? Like, what was your big move that was like, this could actually be a thing? I'm going all in on arbitrage. Like, that's a big leap to me. So to clarify, it, it actually took a while to take off. And so okay. I, I turned down the ability to keep working beyond the two-year commitment I made at this software company, really with nothing but a, what I would call a big book of bad business ideas. And I think it's important that every entrepreneur or someone that aspires to someday do something entrepreneurial keep a similar book of some sort of an idea, a little seed. Um, you need to go ahead and write that down so you don't lose it. We all have these moments when we're driving in the car, we see something in somebody's yard and we think, oh, that's a great business idea, or whatever your moment of inspiration is. But if you don't capture those, then there, you can never act upon them. So I, mm -hmm. I captured, I don't know, maybe 18 or 20 different business ideas. And, and all of them looked great to me at the time. I thought, surely these are all amazing ideas. But in reality, if you're honest, like later, especially in hindsight, you look back and you're like, those were a bunch of really bad business ideas. So it, it, basically, we all need a book of really sucky business ideas. But eventually, two of those ideas 
when merged and improved and sharpened are actually really good business ideas. And so that's the way in which I kind of came up with the case that I made in my mind that was strong enough that th this job was great in technology. I'm so, so thankful for the people I work with and what I learned about tech while there, mm -hmm. but I was really ready to go make, make, make a run of something else. And thankfully, because of the landscaping business success and selling that when I did while in college and then, you know, having a paid job for a couple of years. And this is critical, Andrew, is that I had a wife who was still employed and had benefits. And so I was able to have that flexibility to not work while I kind of tried my hand at the next entrepreneurial thing for me, which had no guarantee of success. So I even quit and went full-time far sooner than most people do, which I would far recommend moonlight as long as you can, you know, to, to work in the evenings or weekends and kind of build up some momentum and, and you know, some positive cash flow before then leaving the security of a, of a day job. Thank you for sharing that. And um, no, I think that's just huge. And your story is even a little bit different than mine. I started freelancing on the side for side hustle money um, while doing e-commerce as a day job. As an e-commerce manager, I was like freelancing on the side and I was doing affiliate marketing, email marketing. And I tell people I, I look at it completely different. I used to think like jumping jobs, you know, our parents taught us jumping jobs is a bad thing. Loyalty is number one, like stay at a job, show people that you can commit, you know, that kind of thinking. And so I used to think about like me jumping between these different things as like a negative. Um, when really now, if I'm looking, I'm not gonna say like, if you just jump like relationships or you're jumping jobs 24 seven, there's like a, a, that's a win guaranteed either. But, um, you know, I've always been a hustler. I've always been like, you know, good at a lot of things, um, but just didn't have any that were really making me money. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't making money. Uh, and so like, you know, it wasn't until I found a couple side hustles, you know, that were like positive that I was mm -hmm. like, you know, kind of like your lawn, your lawn business early on, but it was like, I'm trying a couple of these things and there's some positive, I'm getting some positive results here that encouraged me to like push in. And I was the e-commerce, I was probably working like, honestly, during like the divorce times, probably like a hundred plus hours a week, probably hundred mm -hmm. 10, um, between my 40 or 50 at work and then 50 at home, um, when kind of e-commerce and Amazon was first taking off, if you were dabbling in 2011, um, you were a couple years ahead of me. I think I kind of got in around, um, 2012, 2013. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, like I, I, like you, um, I had the day job and was building this on the side, built it up to a certain level. And even then it was like, I was like, I had always just like started things with no hesitation. And here I was like, I had more money than I had ever had before because I had two jobs and was still scared to take the leap. Um, so I was just curious to know, like, did you have a big opportunity or was it like, you know, something that you grinded out little by little at Target store, thrift stores, like as you go? Yeah, uh, this is actually really fun. Takes me back to what life was like kind of while hustling yeah. at, at yeah. the very early stages. So um, it wasn't until late of 2012 that I really decided to go go in on this in a major way. And where it really took off was in buying large quantities of distinct private label brands from the Lowe's brand of tools, which is called Cobalt. That is their Lowe's hardware store's internal brand of tools is called Cobalt with a K. And they had a bunch of holiday specials coming up for some tools that they built. So Cobalt Magnum Grips, which is a real strong um, plier, Cobalt Double Drive Screwdrivers, Cobalt Double Drive Ratchet Sets, these kind of Cobalt branded things that are nifty, nifty gadgets or good gift givers. So they were running some really crazy discounts on those tools and there was really none of those tools on Amazon at the time. And so I knew, well, Lowe's is, I've seen TV ads for cobalt screwdrivers, like nationwide. And I thought, wow, people are definitely gonna be seeing these ads and gonna be Googling, you know, buy cobalt driver. And if there's nothing on Amazon, there's just an opportunity for me to, mm -hmm. to introduce it there. Brilliant. So I started introducing hundreds, maybe thousands of these cobalt products to Amazon. Taking pictures with my iPhone at the time, not TOS compliant, you know, or give them Amazon style guidelines today, tons of shadows and other things that weren't good. but. I was getting these products out there and just in about 60 days, I did $60,000 of sales on Amazon as a single operator, kind of doing all the FBA prep and photos and listing creation myself. 
And so I like, wow, that is awesome. Like, yeah, that's and at strong margins. I think there's probably at that time maybe the walkaway margin after cost of goods and, and FBA fees and stuff was maybe 20 grand. So to make like actually walk away with 20 grand positive in a couple months, it was far better than what I was doing, you know, previous in my previous job. And it afforded me some positive cash flow to then buy more and bigger quantities of products. So, so much fun. I miss those early days a lot. Like I miss yeah. those early days a lot. And yeah. the platforms changed so much, it you has. know, that at first it was like I started in automotive. So my very first startup nine years ago when I got started um, was car parts. And so I was contacting these mom and pop manufacturers that didn't have I was going to Chrysler Dodge Jeep like hopefully they don't hear this and come after me or something but like i had made connections with um an owner of some um dealerships that part dealerships and i was going aisle by aisle and taking pictures of the yes. parts because the part the images didn't exist but like everybody was looking for oem stuff right yeah so i was just making dealer like partnerships with these dealerships putting their parts up and getting cuts buying them getting cuts um and i'm pretty sure I put up like millions of car parts because it was like you're getting catalogs and just uploading them and then getting pictures as you can and things like that. And then now we're in the job of cleaning that up, right? Like yeah, we're in the job right. of cleaning all that up um, for brands and stuff like that. But like, that's really how the brands wouldn't have even had to worry about it if there wasn't people like us putting their products up there, you know, right. and then it being like below brand standard. And then yeah, we've created a job for ourselves, essentially. Um, right. But I knew you had a cobalt. I didn't know what the product was, but I knew there was a product that like you started hitting it on. Um, yes. And we got to the bottom of it. Yep. Cobalt was it. I mean, there were a lot of things that followed um, for that same holiday season. James Bond, like, I don't know. 50th anniversary collector edition of DVDs, right? This is back when we still used DVDs. And uh, that was like selling for $119 at Target. And it, it wasn't, nobody had it on Amazon. And so on Amazon, the going price was like $300. Oh, like people wow. were really going crazy for the 50, you know, Bond movies or however many there are. Um, that collector set was just, you know, going like crazy. But there were only usually two or three in stock at every Target. And so I would canvas all the Targets around greater Indianapolis and drive from one to the next to the next. Every single one of those collector sets of Bond films, they would sell as soon as I got them in stock. And so that they, I would probably, like free, like yeah, you know. right, right, because it's media or small. So I think I think we're making it a hundred dollars per Bond set. So like I will absolutely drive you know forty five minutes out of Indianapolis to go pick up a few Bond sets because there's three hundred dollars to be made Worth right the there. Trip. So, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure you you combed a little bit more Target for a couple more items while you're there. Yeah, you absolutely. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I think so, one of the reasons I, I avoided arbitrage, um, not avoided it, just like didn't jump in was like this lack of knowledge around like any specific industry. Like I didn't know what a good collector's this was or like branded stuff or apparel or fashion you know and so it was like i don't know every single item i was having to look up versus like if you know baseball cards or you know certain things like if it was around computers probably it's probably where i should have went into like i probably would have been able to like oh yeah this is going to be great um right. but i always had a little bit of insecurity around like finding those items you know mm -hmm. um i think at that time i was just like so busy putting other people's products up and just being like, if I put new products up, like, you know, there's a lot of opportunity here. Um, but okay. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to derail us. So, okay. So let's fast forward just so we cover, because I want to get let's into what, you know, so what you're doing now, but yeah. so we went from arbitrage. Um, how did you make the leap into like branding and brand protection and storytelling and really like brand management on Amazon from, from arbitrage? So arbitrage fueled the first few million dollars in sales for us as a business. And it just gave us a foundation of understanding the marketplaces, which at the time were predominantly Amazon, eBay. Today we serve, we sell on a, a much greater myriad of marketplace sites, but those were the two that really mattered the most. And it gave us the foundational knowledge we used to build upon, but a brand we had no relationships with brands at the time we had grown maybe to eight people by the way that there was i had a team of people that was running the arbitrage operation um but when we were at eight people 2014 15 i think um we had a brand conversation which was new to us we're like oh you actually make this stuff like you're not just a retailer like walmart or target you're the owner of the brand wow like it's a strange conversation to have with a brand owner but they said hey we see you're a top seller you know high ratings have reviews on amazon we have no idea 
what's, what is going on on Amazon, but we know that our products, our products are somehow making it to Amazon and are being listed far, far below the prices they should be. Map. And it's creating all sorts of issues. Yeah, MAP, for anyone that doesn't know, that means minimum advertised price. So maybe let's let's say that the products were minimum advertised price of $100. They're listed on Amazon for 50. And the problem that creates is that when those products are sitting on the shelves of a hardware store or a grocery store, nobody's going to buy it for $100 from that store if they can get it half price on Amazon. And everyone's heard that, oh, I can get it cheaper on Amazon. That's been a thing for, for ages. And so what you have is then the store, the, the Lowe's hardware store says, yeah, we're not going to buy any more product from you. Nobody's buying this off of our shelves. So it creates this issue where it affects your entire distribution because you don't have a consistent price point for your products. And so we actually said, sure, we know how to help with this. And so we started helping in a, um, a maker of salt sprayers. If you're in a cold climate and you, you want to spray salt on your driveway um, or sidewalk to keep the snow from an ice from building up, or if you have fertilizer, uh, same thing. So we started working with this manufacturer to clean up Amazon, to actually add images. So much of the stuff was like little, like drawn on the back of napkin type images. And somehow people were still buying you know, products based upon really, really limited images. So we, um, we worked with that brand first and then said, hey, this is good enough. We should probably devote some time to business development, to like meeting other brands that also have problems with mm -hmm. how their their reputation is, their prices are, their their distribution control, that thing on Amazon. So, so that was the light bulb moment that was like, okay, the stuff that I've learned during arbitrage, like mm -hmm. making these products work or whatever, is like something that can be a service to all these brands. Like we understand those problems, but those are problems because we were trying to sell. And now, like if we think through their eyes, like how can we help them with this? Like we actually have a skill set to sell versus just the right. marketplace being the place to sell. Um, and that was what, 2015? Yes. That brand was, I wish, like, I know you don't have to say their name, but kudos to them because, you yeah. know, I've been banging my head against the wall for nine years to get brands to think like that. So they were ahead of the game. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't expecting you to say salt sprayers. I'll be honest. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that was, that was the first one. And then obviously plenty more followed. We also did dabble with private label as a, as a source of, of inventory. Mm -hmm. um, when you own the brand, you have far more control over how it is marketed and represented and advertised. Um, the opportunity for us looked like we got into making leather dot kits or toiletry bags, as well as then leather purses, leather gloves, um, and then later some shelving, some wood shelving and, and organizational products for a house. Uh, that brand was called Dwellby. It has since been uh, sold off and shuttered. Um, to my knowledge, we sold it a few years back. Um, but for a year or so, we got up to doing about a million dollars in revenue for that brand. And it was at much higher margin than kind of the other traditional yeah. wholesale or arbitrage models. So there's there's money to be made in private label, but it's also really easy to get burned. And in our situation, one of the things that um, defined the end of that private label experiment was when um, sellers from overseas, specifically from China, started selling the exact same products that we were making, but for half price. And it really just upset the entire ecosystem and uh, was difficult to compete at that point. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I'm going to take just a second to, to talk here because for anyone listening, you know, there's so many opinions about Amazon, good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, you know, and it's been because it's been a living, it's like a living marketplace in the way that it's changed. It went from, you know, starting with books to getting customer profiles to Amazon saying, Hey, let's spend to get all the big brands to come in through vendor central, then pushing some of those out. People thinking the only way to sell on Amazon is through vendor central, then three P comes out and all of these resellers and arbitrage and wholesalers start putting these brands up by the, by the boatloads, you know, to be able to get them, the more number of SKUs you have up there, the better, the bigger margins. Um, then us as operators, the ones kind of pioneering and, and leading the wave, you know, the charge, so to speak, are like, well, that's cool, but what's even better is control. Um, and I want the ability to control as much as possible. Well, that means having a trademark or brand registry or, you know, I didn't start at that, but we started, right. you used to have to be a vendor to have those. And then they gave it to us as 3P sellers. Um, and I know me on the service base side was like, once I got that control, the ability to be the only one controlling the photos, to be the only one with an A plus page, to be able to have more copy, to be able to storytell. It was hard for me to look back. 
Like, you know, I have a really hard time working with anyone that's not, you know, trademark or have a brand. Um, and with the private label stuff, you know, it was it's those lessons, at least on my end, that taught me, um, you know, about business in regards to you have to have product differentiation. You can't just slap another label with no story on it at the same price point as something that anyone else can do tomorrow that has like, you know, a manufacturing plan or the, the capabilities to do so and expect to survive. And so, you know, it really became product differentiation or quality or like these things like really, really, really matter versus just it's about getting a product up. It like it yes. really switched, at least for me. Um, the marketplace changed. If you were going to play the game that way, you were going to lose if you just only went that way, you know, and yeah. private label, I think really taught me that. So, I mean, there's so much to, to learn here about going in deep on, on one area. And yeah, I think for us getting out of private label afforded us a lot more focus to provide better service to the brand partners that we did have. And for a long time, probably three, four years, we only partnered with brands in a wholesale capacity where we would buy their products at a agreed upon wholesale price, then sell those at a retail price and make whatever margin was left over after all the shipping and commission fees that Amazon charges. So we, we then probably three years ago now, 2018, we took on our first agency client where we were additional users on their seller central or vendor central account. And we helped them perform the advertising or creative services, say plus content. Uh, we would help them with that kind of as a, you know, expert uh, advisor. So yeah. today the, the business is both of those and more. So today we've also um, uh, invested heavily over the last few years into technology to build our own software that helps us automate manual aspects of selling on marketplaces and um, to just scale faster. So we've, we've went from when we were doing the private label and arbitrage stuff um, back in 2015 and beyond or before we were doing a few million a year in sales and um, we, we grew quite, quite quickly and we did 35 million in revenue um, just this past year. So awesome. that's, yeah, that's, that's an experience that will teach you a lot from having to scale a company. There's a lot, this is so much of a difference between being an entrepreneur for yourself, kind of a self-employed person that is an entrepreneur versus being the leader of others and the leader of a company. And it is, it is not for the faint of heart to go after the latter and, and truly um, you know, give someone else their employment and, and be the one to develop their career and cast vision for their future, help them set goals, just deal with all the HR issues, especially even of, of running a team of people. Um, so it's definitely been a really good growing experience. Um, we have 30 employees. Um, at our company today and um, i've actually not been at the helm for the entirety of the business so i started it you know as out of my apartment and was ceo for the first few years but then uh, chose to leave the company in the hands of capable leaders that, that i hired us and i actually branched off and started a tech company that was in a related space but specific to overstock retail inventory between independent size retailers not target and walmart big box stores but smaller stores that still had surplus product that couldn't convert into cash but nowhere to move it and so i created a b2b marketplace called boxfox for okay. that purpose okay group group boxfox raised some outside investment for it and then um, sold the company in last year. And so that, that allowed me to now be back full, full time at Supply Kick. But Supply Kick has, uh, it's been a labor of love, but not one that I've always been the only leader of. I've definitely shared leadership roles with a variety of other folks that I trusted. Well, welcome back to the game, Chris. Yeah, welcome thank, back. Thank and I think we could have stopped it right at that part. That part really hit home about building a team. So I, uh, Marknology, my sisters work with me. Um, mm. You know, we, I've been through a lot as a family across the globe. Parents were missionaries, like, you know, lived in different parts of the U.S. Uh, you know, um, one of my sisters has a master's in engineering and they're both brilliant, brilliant and um, big leaders in our company as well. Um, but it wasn't until year we're, we're about to turn seven. Um, and really, it was the first three years were probably like freelance years with just, you know, me and one or two, you know, kind of like freelancer type of agency. Um, but we really became a team and an agency. Probably we're going on year four, I feel like, if I'm being honest. Yeah. And um, it really is a huge difference. We went from three people to 15 or wherever we're at now. I'm not exactly sure, uh, <laughs> but it's it's somewhere around there. You know, we have outsourced people and consult contractors and they all feel like part of the team, really, when you when you get down to it, because they're all working in your business and helping you grow it. 
Um, but it's super different to be someone that's an expert at Amazon behind a computer um, and emails and, you know, phone calls or whatever and being techie, techie, techie to, you know, at least it's my next level of leveling up for sure, which is to learn, you know, leadership skills and management skills and people right. skills at a high level um, from people getting poached to, you know, really trying to serve your people and understand what they want, even if it's against what you want, you're trying to help them get there, um, to getting the most out of them, to working remote during the pandemic and not being all together as a team, um, to getting people in the right spots. You know, you have this pressure now at the top, whether you're family, you know, a family company or not, you know, you can have that kind of culture anyway. And um, just caring, like if I make this mistake, if I partner with the wrong, brand then you know people are miserable at work if these people are assholes um to like if i make a decision to hey let's invest into a software and it you know it backfires maybe that was someone's raise this year you know um i don't know it's like as much ownership as you want to take in those decisions but for me it's it's a very heavy thing um mm -hmm. to go from andrew morgan's you know that used to be in a band touring full-time didn't care about money um, you know, when I was younger, because I didn't need it, I don't need material things really to be happy to um, now I'm caring for like 15, you know, plus the brands that we manage, which is about 50 brands that we manage. So it's like, it's just a whole nother level, um, you know, and I'm in that mindset space right now that's like, um, you know, what you did to get you here is great, um, but it's not what you need to take you to the next level, you know, and so kind of shedding some of that old skin to, to you know to put on a new coat so to speak um of leadership and so i that really hit home um it's a it's a real challenge especially in the service-based side like i've built tons of companies that I've, we've worked with over 300 since i started brands and so like tons of them from zero to over a million dollars like i've done that check the box um and product you know on product to product or b2b uh b2c sales like that's one thing to build service-based sales to a high level and and scale it and keep quality it's just different than you know selling a widget over and over and over and over again you know so um i'm really in that space right now having a lot of fun with it but man the challenge um if your background is not leadership if your background is not like hr and management and you're like you know we had to be weird to be pushing the amazon not weird like in the best sense but like weird kind of different to be pushing the amazon space in general right and now it's taking all of these kind of like uh trailblazers so to speak in this space these kind of nerds half nerds half techies half you know like hustlers and then turning them into leaders in this space that's now required as we're trying to scale and those of us that are trying to get more sophisticated and professional um yeah, I'm glad we connected because it feels like we're kind of in that same in that same spot right now. And where do you take it? And, um, you know, where do you go with it? And, um, you know, just trying to be a leader that uh, is here for people that are 22 or 23 in this space mm -hmm. and, and trying to make a career out of it, because I think it will be, um, you know, e-commerce isn't going anywhere and, uh, and yeah. Amazon's not going anywhere. So how do I set the team up for success? I think is something that's always on my mind. And um yeah, big challenge for uh, there's a lot of agency owners ar around the same size as us. Like, I think, you know, a lot of the sophisticated agencies are right around this spot with this number of employees, um, you know, trying to do the thing in a space where it takes several years to get someone up to speed, really, I think, um, from a holistic standpoint. I love that you guys are doing the wholesale side of it. That's something I'm getting into now. Um, we've been all brand, all service, all agency. Um, and now I'm getting into the spot where I'm trying to buy brands um, or like, you know, wholesale some of their products. So really cool. Yeah. You know, it's it's humbling to learn those, those entrepreneurial or leadership lessons from the early days. You've really as whoever you and your partners are, if you have any, you've got to do all the things you, you or else you fail. You've mm -hmm. got to create the sales, do the marketing, do the accounting, the HR, like whatever is there, you have to do it. And if it, if you don't, things stop. But later when you add people and size and complexity to your business, if you keep doing all the things, that is your limiter to growth. And that, that will probably be your downfall is that you try to do too much rather than delegating and elevating people to operate in their unique ability so that you can operate in your unique ability of steering the company. 
Right. So it's been a humbling experience to, uh, to grow in my ability to delegate and get things done through others. And we as a company have decided that one of our values is people over profit. And our people really, we do see as our most precious asset, not our customers, not our inventory or our buildings, it's our people. And without our people, I think our company and most every company would just default into a state of failure. And it's just really, really great people that bring it out of that state of failure into a state of success. And so the um, goal that I have of building a company has actually been redefined lately. And it's, it's not to build a business, it's really to build people because the people are the ones that make up the business. And so growing business is nothing more than a group of growing people. So my, my new kind of mission is to just grow our leaders and grow our individuals that are on the team. You need to make a snippet of that because that was another great one uh, for your content and just making a note of that one for anyone listening, like that's fire. Um, and it's, it's absolutely true when you get to the core of it. I think when you get to the top of whatever it is, you're, whatever you're doing, you really realize that it's nothing without the people. And so if it's nothing without the people, then the people become the ultimate focus. Right. Um, I, I just, uh, like maybe a little bit of personal share, but you know, several months ago, I just let go of our biggest client, um, and one of our longest clients, um, you know, and, um, at the beginning, it's just like, you know, loyalty matters and anyone that stays with you. And, um, you know, those are the most important traits, especially if you come from nothing. I think loyalty trumps a lot of other things. But as you level up, like that can no longer be the number one priority. And it's got to be like, what's the quality of life for my employees? You know, what are, it's not just the, the money coming in from this brand, but there's an exchange of energy there whenever you exchange money for, for work, you know. Um, and so thinking about the team has been, you know, that was the ultimate driver of that decision was, you know, I think that there's um, a better fit for the team, you know, with this particular brand and, um, you know, trying to just people over profit. It wasn't about that money. It wasn't about that client. It was about, um, you know, what, what's the culture of the team? What are, you know, what's the best way to get the best out of them and trying to listen to them versus just like watching the checks come in, you know, because it can be easy to do that, you know, and you're like, just take another client. It's not a big deal. Um, right. You know, so that was a big move for me, um, still learning those things. I know some people learn stuff at different, you know, I've, I have yet to exit a company, um, you know, so people learn things at different stages in the game. Um, but for me, it was it was kind of one of those like um, put your money where your mouth is. If you believe like, you know, people over profit kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. What's next for supply kick? Like um, so you're back and you guys are, you know, um, you got the wholesale side and you're doing the agency side, um, you know, and kind of what's your focus, I guess, is it building the team? Is that, you know, kind of your guys' focus with supply kick? Is it acquiring more brands? Like what's, what's your real goal? I mean, at the end of the day, as I mentioned, our people are our biggest assets. So the, the goal is to build the highest caliber team of people with the most breadth of experience, but also the, the highest standard of integrity. Um, we, we hire for character, uh, competency, and compatibility, and we really, you can be extremely brilliant, but if you just don't have the honesty piece and integrity, then you're not a good fit for us, and you won't be a good fit for the partners that we serve either. So, um, yeah, the goal is to continue to build a rock star team of, of folks that can deliver immense value for brands that lack the time, resources, or expertise to maximize their opportunity on marketplaces um, in, in today's leading landscape, which currently look like Amazon, Walmart, Target, eBay, and, and a host of others, but that's probably uh, the four biggest ones, Google Shopping, maybe Facebook, there's, there's a lot, and I can talk a lot about marketplace expansion you know, international pieces, um, you know, but those are the main ones. And so if a brand doesn't have the, well, I would probably say five person team, kind of experts in logistics and advertising and copywriting, like the, this long list of people to, to really win and excel in what they need to uh, on their own. And that's kind of where we we fit. And so um, the goal is to continue to grow the list of, of brands we work with. We have 140 different brand partnerships right now. And we, we have intentionally not grown that too fast because we really have a high standard of service 
we see ourselves as true partners, true extensions of a brand's team, of their mission, vision, and values. And so we care a lot about aligning ourselves with people that think like we do and that have um, goals for, for controlling their brand, for growing their brand into the future, to do so in an intelligent, wise way and not just go for quick growth for the sake of growth's sake, but really to see how, how great they can become rather than just how big they can become. And so, yeah, it's to grow both our, our team of people as well as then the, the clients that we serve, the brand partners we have. Chris, I love your mindset. And uh, I feel like there's a lot of uh, alignment between, um, you know, both of our company's cultures and, and teams. Um, both of us here in the Midwest, if you consider Indiana the Midwest. Yeah. Um, and when you're ready to do a conference, let me know. We should definitely do like a co-marketing conference. Um, maybe bring in one other agency and call it like, you know, the Midwest Ecom or something like that, you know, and uh, just bring some brands in, either our own brands to come in and just kind of have like a crash session with our teams or, um, you know, something like that. I've been waiting for the pandemic to lift, but we got a really awesome office here in Kansas City, um, you know, and I've been wanting to do something like that for a while, just bringing a lot of value. You know, I, I think it's even good. It would even be good to solidify your brands meeting other agency owners to be like, hey, like uh, your agency is doing the right stuff. I think there's mm -hmm. some even validation with having other people come in and talk about the same things. And, uh, you know, in my mind, I'm just brainstorming right here, but maybe for our listeners to get a little excited, like, you know, I'd love to have like a real hands on um you know, they're coming in, we're helping them do a product with SEO, how we would do it, helping them evaluate, you know, we have a session that's just like about evaluating photography and a session about advertising, a session about logistics and, um, you know, just kind of educating the brands internally um, so they can go back and feel a little bit more empowered having spent like a, you know, a weekend session with, with, a, with their agency. Um, I think it'd be awesome. And, I, you know, we have brands come to us that are just like, um, you know, I think that like caring part where they're actually hiring us to be their partner in house to think like them. And if we are their employees in house, like character and um, it's just very important character and integrity being super important if you're going to be someone's employee and caring about their brand. And, you know, during the pandemic, I took it very, very, very seriously that we were people's lifeline um in a lot of ways to keeping their businesses open and keeping people with their jobs and you know amazon was was a huge driver for that and so took that um you know seriously as as an agency running these people's companies in regards to e-commerce um i think you're 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 on all the right stuff so i know we're running up on time i can talk about this stuff forever uh, especially yeah. the mindset stuff i just i really get into it because i think it's at the core of everything that you do um, where can people find you? How can they get in contact? How can they engage with you on social media? Um, where can people find Chris? Yeah, so supplykick.com is our company's website, and I'm active on LinkedIn, Chris Palmer, Supplykick. Just search that, you'll find me. Um, occasionally, I'll, I'll get on Twitter and Facebook, but uh, it's been nice to kind of take some some time off from social media after all yeah. the kind of shut in over the last year. The, the last thing I needed was just more uh, time in front of the, uh, my phone. And so I've really been thankful to enjoy kind of more face-to-face -face interaction with family. Again, I've got young kids, a uh, um, couple daughters. And so, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not nearly as active on um, social media as I once was. More, people can find your team on supplykick.com? Supplykick.com. I love it. My yeah. team's even better than me, just so everybody knows. Like, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I started it on the creator, but I'm not the rule maker. I'm not the process guy. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the creator, you know? Um, and I think that's that's been one of the hard things about scaling the team, too, is like as the leader, you're needed to create the SOPs, um, you know, for your team and create this kind of guidelines for the for the family to exist, so to speak. Um, and that can kind of go against my natural inclinations, like, you know, my natural abilities. Um, I'm more of like a rule breaker, you know, yeah. than I am yeah, like yeah. a rule maker. So um, trying to step into that role and just embrace it instead of uh, stiff arming it, so to speak. But Chris, this has been awesome. And um, I know we're going to stay connected. Um, I'm, I'm surprised we haven't yeah. met sooner. So I'm, I'm glad you're back to the game. Um, yeah. And if you need anything, please reach out and um, I'm happy to have you part of the Amazon family. Definitely. Let's put our minds together on that collaboration piece. I like I like where you're headed with that. Appreciate the opportunity to be on today. And if there was one thing I would um, you know, just lay out there for anyone thinking entrepreneurially um, is that all change or sorry, all, all progress is preceded by change and all change is uncomfortable. So the, the change that we all experienced as a globe this past year, you know, it was very uncomfortable. 
Um, and a lot is changing, but there's so much progress available if we just see it with that lens of where are the opportunities? How could things be better, even though things are, aren't going super well, you know, potentially, depending upon where you're at, potentially it's the best year of your life. Yeah. But I know a lot of people whose jobs and careers have been dramatically impacted over the last year. And so just lean into that, just view it as progress rather than as pain. Um, it's uncomfortable, but, but progress is on the other side um, of what we're going through. And then if anyone's juggling multiple projects, I, I've just lived this for like seven or eight years now that I've just got to be honest about how ridiculously not funny it is, just to how much more successful I am when I focus on one thing rather than doing five simultaneously. As you mentioned, real estate, I had a few rental units. Uh, I still have one right now. Um, I have had four other businesses multiple kids now and an Airbnb unit inside my house. And so there's been a ton of uh, potential distractions. distractions. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's all good and well um, to an extent, but th there comes a point in time and I don't know what that point is. It's different for every person based upon their capacity. But I was way over my capacity, leaning too far over my skis, trying to do too much. And so I would just say it's worth considering. And this is from kind of my last eight, eight years or so running the businesses that I am. Um, of just saying, I really wish I had narrowed in and, and done less, but better, deeper, sooner. I love that. And that's, that's great. Um, that's a great way to close out the show. Um, you know, I think that the one thing that entrepreneurs know is that um, change comes when you're uncomfortable. And so we start seeing the uncomfortable moments and getting excited. That's the difference. Um, yeah. We're still uncomfortable. We just start getting a little excited because we know <laughs> what's Truth. about what's around the corner. That's the only difference. We've had a little bit of success with that. And um, so when you start seeing, um, you start feeling uncomfortable, you should get excited because that probably means you're about to move into something great. So um, thanks again, Hustlers, for tuning in. Chris, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks again to our sponsor for today's episode, FullScale.io, helping you build software teams quickly and affordably. Um, Chris, if you're looking to add to your developers, let me know. Full scale is the number one spot to go. I've been using them for a lot of my different stuff through the years. Really reliable. Um, give you a personal introduction. So thanks again, guys. We'll see you next time. Take care. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.